Welcome to the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Amago Day. It's good to be with you this morning. We are in a series called Belonging to the People of God. And for the last, for the next two weeks, this week and last week, uh, we're looking at what is the sort of unifying belief that we share. When you think about our time and our place in culture, we probably have not lived for a few decades at least in a more polarized time. And what we're asking the question is, what does it mean to be a people a community of faith following Jesus that is transformed by the gospel, but is also a faithful presence in the world, reflecting the love and mercy and grace of Christ, while simultaneously a prophetic witness to the world. And so what we are going through is sort of our answer of how do we do that. Last week we looked at the Apostles' Creed and this creed that is spoken and stated and believed in by, by the people of God since the very beginnings of the church. One of the things I said last week was that nothing should separate us from one another. There should be no politics, no cause, no issue that is greater than our confession of Christ that unifies us. And I realized that in saying that, that it may have sounded, and I didn't intend this, that I was asking that you are dismissive of those issues and causes. And the reality is that we, many of us, carry great pain and great passion around the things that we believe in and commit to and identify with. And it's never our intention to bring hurt or to act like those things don't matter. As a community of faith, we, we desire, we work hard to be a place of healing for all people so that you can find that space where it is safe and you're protected to journey into healing. We have men and women pastors that are here to provide that. We have uh, groups like Refuge that create spaces like that. And so I want you to know that I have deep respect for the issues that are close to your heart. My call to unity is not to say we should take sin lightly, we should take issues lightly and dismiss real pain, real suffering real righteousness. But rather, what I believe God is calling us to do is to recognize that the unity that we have in Christ already exists. We don't create it. It's here because God put us in it. And therefore, if we walk faithfully into that unity, the possibility for actual reconciliation exists. Real repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. 
Most of us feel like if we just all reconciled and agreed, we could be unified. But how it actually works is that when we embrace our unity, it's the precursor that pushes us into reconciliation. Think of your family and the places that you have disagreed. And why have you stayed at the table? It wasn't because you found agreement, at least not my family, but it was because we were family. I, I didn't get to show up at your house and go, can you be my mom and dad? Because I like your stuff better, you know? And so when Christ calls us to unity, it's not to ignore or push aside or refuse the things that are very important to us, but it is to place them in the context of the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we walk into that unity in obedience and faithfulness to Jesus, real healing is possible. Real reconciliation is possible. And so the creeds become essential to defining the very thing that unifies us, which is the person and work of God who is Father and Son and Spirit. My prayer is that as we push into this confession for ourselves, we will realize that in Christ, this call to unity can be healing and transformational. It can reveal the, the faithful presence of Christ in a divided world. It can be that prophetic witness that says we are not things that divide. We're not people that are disposable and that the world can't heal itself. And so when we go through today, like last week and this week, and uh, confessing creeds, I realize that for some of you, you go, grew up in uh, a, a liturgical church and you confess creeds like, I believe in God, the Father, you know, and it's not the most passionate thing in the world. But it's extremely important, uh, I believe, in our time that in a world where we basically create our own identity and we add to it as we go, that we, as the people of God, embrace the identity that God has revealed for us. That we step into the truth and the authority that was revealed to us by God in Christ. Not something that we just put together a mishmash of what we like or don't like. The creeds are important because they are based on scripture written by the fathers, remember, to protect the mystery. They weren't dogma that to be recited and sort of dead doctrine. But they were defining what the New Testament and the Old Testament taught and trying to say what the scripture said in a summary type way to protect and build a hedge around the mystery. To say that God is less than this is to reduce the mystery, and that's heresy. But also to try to say more through special knowledge or whatever it would be is also to reduce the mystery. And the reason it's a mystery is because we stand in awe 
of a God who created us and loved us enough to come after us in Jesus. And so the creeds say what the Bible tells us the mystery is. Now, I want to mention something about the Bible. There's sort of two ways to look at the scriptures. One is that we read the scriptures through the world and the circumstance that we're in, that that's the lens through which we see the Bible. The way that the church has historically understood scripture and the way at Imago that we understand scripture is scripture is the lens through which we see and understand the world and life. The church has always insisted on this. It is the description of how people understood the Bible and its purposes and how it works in our life. I I want you to see a confession. This is from the French Confession of 1559. You remember that um, back then. But this is how even 500 years ago and before that, they talked about the Bible. They said, we believe that the word contained in these 66 books of the Bible, books has proceeded from God and receives its authority from him alone, not from humans. And inasmuch as it is the rule of all truth containing all that is necessary for the service of God and for our salvation. And so it's not lawful for people or angels to add to it or take away from it or change it. Therefore, it follows that no authority, whether history or custom or human wisdom or judgments or proclamations or edicts or decrees or counsels or visions or miracles should be opposed to these scriptures. But on the contrary, all things should be examined, regulated, reformed according to them. And therefore, we confess these three creeds, the apostles, the Nicene, the Athanasius, because they are in accordance with the word of God. And so the church for, for centuries, for its life, has understood that this is the lens through which we see the Bible. It reads us versus we read it. It interprets us versus we interpret it. Now, today we're going to look at the Nicene Creed. And the word creed comes from the Latin word credo. And it it means literally that which I give my heart to. When we say that I believe, what we're saying is that this is what I'm giving my heart to. Faith in the English language isn't a, a verb, belief It doesn't come at us like a verb. There's always something attached to it. I have faith in. I have faith in. It needs an object. But biblical faith, when it talked about believing, was an active positive response to what you knew was true. Uh, It's kind of like if we said, hey, this building's on fire. Believe me, right? Right? And you would do something about that if you really believed me, I would, I would hope, right? If you just sat there and went, hmm, yes, I acknowledge that to be true. I would be like, yeah, I don't think you really believe it, though. You need to run. 
When we talk about biblical faith, when we confess the I believe of the creeds, we are not stating this dead doctrine. We are saying, this is the God that I give my heart to. And that I am believing actively now in him and his work in my life for my meaning and my hope. That's what we mean when we say, I believe. It's very different than a cultural definition of I believe, which has been reduced to sort of I assent, I recognize. Belief is action. And so when we think of the Nicene Creed, why would they write another creed after the Apostles' Creed? Didn't the Apostles do a pretty good job? Um, But the church fathers, even though that creed had been widely uh, accepted, they gathered in this place called Nicaea. And they gathered there essentially to articulate the mystery, particularly of how Jesus Christ shares the essence of God the Father. How is he fully human and fully God? Because in that day, as just like our day, it's easy to reduce the mystery. It's easy to say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I think he's a great teacher. I think he's an inspired guru. I think all kinds of things that we think about Jesus. What the council met of the church fathers met to say, no, what is it that scripture says about the fullness of God in Christ? That he is fully human and fully God, and that is so important to our salvation, and we'll talk about why in a minute. And so the reason that we're adopting it in our time and place, because just like then, there are countless opinions about who Jesus was or is. And there are many definitions that make Jesus less than who he actually is. And the problem with that is that if he is less than what scripture says he is, then he cannot be your God. He cannot save you. He cannot heal you. And we're still in our sins. And there's no hope after this life. When he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, we have to know who the I is that is loving us as the Father loved him. And that can't happen if your Jesus is less than what scripture says he is. So it's really important that we understand this creed. So we're gonna walk through it here in a few minutes and I want you to follow along and we'll look at some passages as well. Look at that worked. Good timing. All right. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, True God from true God. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten. What what happened there? I'm just reading this again. 
Okay. <laughs> what are you doing to me up there? All right, where do we leave off? Okay, true God from true God, go again. Next one. Well, you see, that's a repeat. All right, man, I'm going to go to my notes. I got it right here, too. Thank you. All right. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Now, this is really important because as they were wrestling with who this Jesus was, they were realizing people are trying to reduce to say, you know what, the Spirit sort of came on this man, Jesus, and then he acted for God, but then it left him. And what the fathers are arguing is that Jesus Christ is the true God. In 1 John chapter 5, it says this in verse 20. He says, we, all, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so for John, in his gospel and in his letters and in Revelation, he understood that this relationship with Jesus Christ fully man, but also fully God as the Son of God, that that relationship, that knowing of him was eternal life, that he became our source and our sustenance. In Colossians chapter 1, it says this, that the Son is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And in Colossians, we see the Apostle Paul bring together the fullness of both natures. As the Son, he is the image of this invisible God and enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom God creates all that he creates. He is the one who currently sustains all that needs sustaining but he is also the one who through his real body and real blood and actual physical death in time and history made peace with a creation that was in rebellion and broken. 
And so for you and for me, that means that we don't have just a a, a sense of peace. We have peace from God and a peace that was purchased that didn't swipe sin under the carpet, but that took the very evil violence and sin of the world and of our hearts into himself. So that you and I, his people, can be at peace with him. And so in Colossians 2.9, Paul continues by saying, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. It was important for the church fathers to be able to articulate that Jesus Christ was God. But it was also important for them to articulate that he was begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. If we have that, we could put it on the screen. The next line of this creed. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And of one being was really a critical point for them. Because what was at risk in the heresies that were floating around that day was saying that Jesus was less than God. That he, he, we didn't have, we either had three gods who shared a different essence and therefore there were three gods, or we had one God and Jesus was less than. And the fathers understood from scripture that the Son and the Father share the same essence as with the Spirit. And so they had to come up with a word, and the word that they came up with was homoousis, which is of the same substance or essence. And so when they say that Jesus Christ was begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, They're saying that there is one God who is Father and Son and Spirit, and though that they're unique in their person, they share the same essence as one God. And they are related in a communion of fellowship between Father, Son, and Spirit. It's challenging to put our mind around, and yet that is what Scripture revealed, and that is what the fathers were making sure was stated clearly. And so Jesus is in this unique position because he is both God and human. And as God, he can represent God to us in the very language of our own humanity. And as human, he can represent us to God as the perfect man who is without sin. We could see in the following passages why it was important that Christ was fully human and fully God. In Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul is talking about the humbling of Christ. And he says, so in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so as God, he shares one and the same nature as the Father, but for us, he also didn't try to claim that nature, but he was willing to, he was willing to be lowered from it by taking on our humanity, to suspend some of his attributes so that as a human, he could be fully human, that he could represent us to God and represent God to us as the divine son. And so he's the perfect mediator, the one who goes to God on our behalf and understands fully our human journey. But he is also God who speaks to us in the language of our own humanity in our own language, in in our own flesh. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And the Son is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. That Jesus, the God-man, is rightfully king of all kings, the king of the universe. That today, there is a man in heaven in a glorified, resurrected body who also is the son of God and is sustaining his creation. And what I'm not saying is to dismiss science. I'm saying delve into it. Look at quarks and all those things. Look at the ever-expanding universe and let your mind be blown at the greatness of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus, as full human, not only dies the death we should have died, but as he has risen from the dead, he now stands in the place as your priest and my priest. And he says, yes, I know what it is to be tempted like that. I know what it is to suffer like that. And he turns and goes to the Father on your behalf and makes your case for you. And the beauty is that by his wounds, the Father declares you forgiven and made right. And there is peace there. As God, he can communicate the exact nature, glory, and radiance of God. But as man, he can communicate his mercy and his sympathy to you and I today. And as king, he is the one who broke the power of death. He broke the power of the devil by conquering it for us and overcoming the grave. And so when the fathers were opposing, critiquing this idea that Jesus is less than God or Jesus is not fully man. They, they were fighting to say what the scriptures said. And so it was clear for them that for Jesus to save us, that he has to be both fully God and fully human of one being as the father. Let's pick up in the next phrase in the creed. Through him all things were made. And it says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. He was made man. And for our sakes, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now there are three humans that the creed refers to. He refers to Jesus, which we would assume. It refers to the Virgin Mary, which we would assume. It's weird to me that Pontius Pilate keeps showing up, right? Like this is the dude who ordered his crucifixion. Why do we say this, his name in the creed? Same with the Apostles' Creed. And the reason that it was important for the fathers is because they were anchoring the death and resurrection of Christ in real historical time. That this wasn't myth, that this wasn't a story that was made up, that you can go back and you can look for Pilate, the governor of Rome, and you can see that under his authority, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And so that when God entered the world, he entered into actual history, into our time and our place. And the fathers want, wanted us to speak the name of Pilate because as we do, what we're saying is that this happened historically. And it's happening presently 
as we believe, we are believing, as we give our heart to this Jesus. It says, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and Son, he is worshipped and glorified, and he has spoken through the prophets. It was important for the fathers to capture what the scripture teaches, that the Holy Spirit was a person and was one and the same as God the Father. It wasn't some mystical, ghost-like experience. And that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son as the Father and Son send his people their very own spirit. And he was the inspiring power of God behind the prophets and the apostles who spoke for God and wrote the scriptures. And so they wanted it to be known that it wasn't the spirit of the age. It wasn't the spirit of uh, the Greek logos. It's not the spirit of Portland, but it's the spirit, Holy Spirit of God that shapes, that calls us into this relationship. And it says, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, meaning a universal church that was built upon the apostles, and we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now this sort of like makes us stop and go, what, I have to be baptized to be forgiven? And there is a doctrine called baptismal regeneration. I know you're all very excited to hear about it. Um, but essentially, it believed that if you get baptized, and when you get baptized, then the Spirit of God enters your life. And the fathers weren't saying that. This wasn't even an idea back then. But baptism is a sacrament, and it's a symbol. And sacrament and symbol point to a spiritual reality. And so at Imago, we recognize the Lord's Supper or communion, that this bread and the wine is a symbol that points to the historical reality that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed on the cross. And we believe that God meets us in his grace when we remember and recognize those symbols. And so baptism is symbolizing our dying to sin having our sin washed away, and when we raise out of the water, we rise to new creation in Christ. They weren't saying the act of baptism saves you, but that symbol of baptism points to the reality that you've been forgiven of your sins because you have identified with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so at the end, they say, we look for the resurrection of dead and the life of the world to come. As we at Imago talk about what does it mean to make our doctrinal statement basically these two creeds, 
It isn't that we believe doctrine is unimportant, but we're saying that doctrine shouldn't be in a drawer or hidden back on a website. That the living proclamation of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ and what unites us together is supposed to be the most important thing about us. And so we say it in our worship, we learn it and recite it because as we do, we confess that this is the God we collectively are giving our heart to. This is the God who we count on to bring healing, to bring forgiveness, to bring redemption, to help us to reconcile our differences because we are united in him. And so it is the fullness of who Christ is. If your Jesus is anything less than this, then you haven't gotten the Jesus that revealed himself to us, to the apostles and through the Holy Scriptures. Which means you can't have a Jesus who is your Lord. You can't have a Jesus that is your king. You can't have a Jesus that is the death-conquering, risen Savior. But the good news is that we today get to stand in this historical line of people all over the globe, all over this city, and throughout the history of the church and confess that this is our God. So I I would challenge you again this week, I don't know how many of you said the Apostles' Creed every day before you checked your phone. I think two of you did. I really didn't do it well the first day. I was like halfway through stuff before I was like, dude, you just told everybody. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so, but here's an idea. I just made it, I took a little picture of it and made it, you know, like the screensaver thing or whatever. So now I'm like, ah, there we go. So creative. Um, but I would challenge you again to say this creed every day. Say it by yourself as the first thing you wake up. Say it with your family, your friends, your community, your small group. Confess this Christ together. And what you see and what you realize is there is an existential encounter that we have with the creeds because we are saying, even though we're talking about this historical event and this eternal God, we are experiencing his presence and his grace right now in our confession. And so would you stand together with me, Imago Dei, and would you confess this creed with me as we confess our faith in our God. We believe in one God, the Father, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made.
for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Father God, today we come to you in the name of this Jesus, by the power of this Holy Spirit. And we celebrate, God, that despite everything that separates us, you have made us one. And my prayer today is that our hearts would be welled together by your spirit and with one voice, you would hear these praises rise up to you. We thank you that you are all that you are and that all that you are, you are to us. And so thank you, God, for giving us your son. In his name we pray. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.